Good morning, everyone. If you would, open your Bibles with me. We're in Luke chapter 6. We're going to pick up at verse 43. Luke 6, verse 43. All right, let me draw your attention to a video. Wow. So that was just a a week ago. I was researching this and I just wanted to highlight a point of irony before we talk about it. I I looked up on Google, Tennessee home falls into river, and there were many, many hits on this link. Uh, Within the first two pages, however, I, I read a bunch of headlines, landslide pulls large homes off bluff into Tennessee river, two homes collapse, And landslide along Tennessee River, unprecedented floods make homes slide into river, followed up by this ad, waterfront homes for sale in Knoxville, Tennessee, realtor.com. Talk about a marketing fail, huh? Now, I can't imagine watching my dream home slide down the cliff. You know, those residents, when they were building these homes, simply did not envision that this would take place. Those homes were only built about 20 years ago. I mean, what did they envision? Well, probably a lot of things. Lazy days on the river, sipping a morning cup of coffee while looking out to a beautiful view. Maybe they were fishermen and women, right? They wanted to catch that big blue catfish, or one of those river stripers. But that's just it. No one thinks catastrophe will strike until it does. The Hardin County Emergency Management Director Melvin Martin said that the homes near the river will always be at the mercy of flooding and ground erosion. Normally the homes will be safe, but on that Saturday, the Tennessee River rose 19 feet above the the flood stage. So those families lose everything. They had built in an unstable place, betting that the river would never rise to those levels. But bottom line, the river did rise. Weak foundations give way, and they lose everything. Now, to close his most famous sermon, Jesus tells a a similar parable of two builders. And he tells this in the Sermon on the Mount, both in Matthew and in Luke. Now, we're going to look at Luke's version this morning. But one thing that I would like us to see is that this parable represents Jesus' bottom line to this Sermon on the Mount. It's meant to bring about his grand conclusion, his grand challenge, It is also his final offer. 
It's meant to bring every single listener to a point of decision. And not a a point of decision for other people, but a personal point of decision. As I hear this parable, I'm not to be thinking of that person that I wish could hear this sermon. Or that neighbor that's sitting in the room next to me and I know a little something about their life and I think to myself, oh boy, I hope they're listening right now. No, Jesus is challenging us to hear. He's asking us, where do you stand? This sermon has been building in intensity. It's hard to imagine the intensity rising any more than it does, and yet here we are, the intensity continues to increase. Now let's think about where we've been so far. It might be a little foggy to some of you, or maybe you're just picking up with us for the first time. But back before Christmas, we talked about or we opened up this sermon, verses 20 through 26, and we, we saw that Jesus began this sermon by challenging us to change what we value. Isn't that what he was doing when he said, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who hunger now. Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you when you are hated. And I, I asked you the question, which would you choose of two lists of four? Which would you rather be? Poor? hungry, sad, and hated, or rich, well-fed, happy, and popular. I think we know which list we would choose. But bottom line, Jesus says that these two lists represent two different value systems. Do you value putting that, that metaphorical home temporarily at the side of the riverbed so that you can get that immediate gratification? Or do you have a more long-term view? Are you banking on Jesus? Are you willing to identify with Jesus, which means that you have no solutions to offer and that you would identify with him so much so that you would even overgo, undergo persecution for his name's sake. The question is, which do you value? We moved along and then Jesus challenged us to change how we love. We looked at two of the most difficult things Jesus ever said. Love your enemies and do not judge others. Now how are we supposed to do that, we asked. I mean, we live in a world where everybody has two lists, right? Those people who occupy my neighbor list, these are the people who have done good things to me or at least haven't done anything bad to me, so I can be okay with them. But then I also have that list of people that I have the right to hate because they have hurt me. But Jesus says, no, the bottom line, He's representing a different justice system. You can't have two lists, Jesus says. You can only have one list. Everybody falls within the the neighbor list. So now we move ahead and we look at verses 43 and 45 and we see one more inconceivable demand. Listen to what he says. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked up from a bramble bush. 
The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now let me summarize this for you. He's not just challenging us to change what we value. He's not just challenging us to change how we love. He is now challenging us, bottom line, to change who we are. That's what this boils down to here. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Now, Jesus' opinion on people is not there's two categories, there's good people and there's bad people. He says there's only one who is good, and who is that? God. And so, essentially, as we look at this parable, this analogy that he's creating, Jesus is telling us that for a bad tree to produce the fruit that he's talking about it would have to become a different type of tree altogether. It would have to undergo a DNA change or what the Bible calls transformation. Friend, that is one of the main messages of all the Bible. We have to become a different kind of tree. Now the Bible tells us that you and I become a different type of tree When we place our faith in Jesus, that's when we become something different. Because it can't, it turns out that we can't change who we are. But Jesus can change who we are. So each one of us is entangled and entrapped in sin. And and apart from the grace of God, apart from putting our faith in Jesus, the Bible says that we are forever entangled in that mess. But God can radically change who you are. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, Christ died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. Do you know what that means? It means that we must graft our lives to Christ by faith. If we wish to become a different kind of tree, then we must attach all that we are to Him. All of my worldview, all of my hopes and dreams and aspirations, all of my values, my happiness, even my eternity. And when we do this, then Jesus does what only Jesus can do. Let me ask you a question. Have you seen examples of that radical life change that only Jesus can bring about? Have you seen that take place in a person's life? Yes. You know, it's amazing to me here at Osterville Baptist Church, all the examples of this radical life change that we see day in and day out as people entrust their lives to Christ as they grow in His Word. You know, I've talked to sons in this church who have watched their father undergo the radical process of transformation. And they grew up with a different man. They say, that's not the same man that raised me. 
I talked to people who were formerly living a self-preoccupied life. It was all about them, but then they trust Jesus as their Savior. Suddenly, they're no longer living for themselves, but they're living for others. Friends, here's the deal. If a church is not seeing recent examples of transformation, that church is dying on the vine. We want to see people coming to Jesus. It means that people in the church are sharing Jesus with others. It means that people within the church are being radically obedient. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in a dying church. I want to be in a live church. That's why our vision statement here is worship, transformation, mission. Worship acknowledges God. It says that we're going to let God be God. We're going to let God set the priorities. And we're going to be grateful to God for all that He is. Transformation is this process that we're talking about where we say to ourselves, you know, we could manufacture things. We could do a lot of things to get people to fill up a room. But without the Spirit of God, without the Gospel of Jesus Christ, There can be no real, true life change. We need transformation. And it's only then that that third part of the vision matters. Because changed people are the people that God uses to change other people. As we look at the second metaphor involving treasure, again, verse 45 says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. Here again, we're talking about transformation. We, we get the idea of treasure, right? It's something that you store away to spend later. And in this metaphor, Jesus says that the heart is like the treasure chest. The heart in Greek is cardia. It, it represents your deepest thoughts and being. So this metaphor is drilling down to the depths of your character. And your character is who you are when no one is looking. Now there's two types of treasure, isn't there? There's real treasure and there's fake treasure. There's real gold and there's fool's gold, which we know is pyrite. So what kind of treasure is inside your heart? The genuine article? Are you internalizing the teachings of Jesus? Or are you content with the fool's gold? The stuff that appears substantive and fulfilling, but it really has no purchasing power in the world of the soul. And what difference does it make anyway? What if I have a treasure chest full of real gold or fool's gold? Well, the difference is miles apart when the bottom falls out. I mean, did you ever, or have you ever asked yourself, do I have the spiritual chops to be faithful when life gets absolutely devastating? Or when I'm tempted by something that is truly tempting? Or even when I need to muster up real spiritual courage to do something? The question really is, what are you made of? What are you made of? 
What kind of person are you deep down inside? You know, while no one can say how I'm going to respond in a particular situation, we can do the hard work of storing up good treasure that will prove true in the day of testing. And so Jesus says here, look, do you want to know who you really are? Do you really want to dig down deep into the core of who you are? Well, here's one great indicator of that. What is coming out of your mouth? Whoa. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks, Jesus says. James says something similar. He says, we all make mistakes, for if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. So you can think of it like this, you are what you say. You are what you say. Do you want to get a sense of how you're doing in this whole character thing? How do you talk about people when they're not around? Are your words constructive or destructive? Positive or negative? Life-giving or poisonous? Clean or foul? You are what you say. I know what you're thinking, guys. I do. This is tough stuff. This is, I thought loving my enemy was hard and, and not judging others was hard, but this is next level. You see, Jesus is asking for a radical departure from what you formerly valued, how you formerly loved, and even who you formerly were. He's asking you to entrust Him with your very self. Look at what he says in verse 46 as we move on. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You see, to call Jesus Lord means that you're claiming or recognizing something about his uniqueness or his authority. In fact, Lord, Lord is a repetition that intensifies that where you're saying i really believe that he has the right and the power to make decisions to give orders to enforce obedience and as you look through the gospel of luke jesus has that authority right he he makes simple utterances and and demons come out of people and miracles happen he teaches unlike anyone else who has ever taught before, and lives are dramatically changed. And there's been all kinds of different responses to this authority we've seen so far. Some of them reject Him. He's teaching in a synagogue in His hometown, Nazareth. And when the teaching ramps up to a level that those people are no longer willing to accept, what do they do? They're ready to throw Him off the cliff. Other people, though, they don't reject Him they superficially accept him. These are the kind of people that come to church and say Jesus things and sing Jesus songs and do Jesus things from time to time when it's convenient. But they don't accept him down to the very core of what he's asking here. They accept him on their terms and not on his terms. The disciple, though, 
recognizes something about Jesus' authority. He is Lord over everything. And if He is Lord over everything, then He has the right to radically reorient my values, how I love, even change who I am. You see, Jesus here, when He's saying, why do you call Me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? He's running a biblical CAT scan on the soul. Alistair Begg says it like this, the contrast is between our lips and our lives. It's between saying and doing. It has been uh, between the individual who is able to call him Lord and yet at the same time does not do what a profession of lordship demands. But wait a minute. Hold on. Doesn't the Bible say that a person is saved by grace through faith alone? Isn't that what's taught all over the Bible? Absolutely. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, plus nothing. I like to say it like this, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But, but, we have to ask the question, what is he getting at here? Those who have truly trusted the gospel, Jesus says, will obey him. So Martin Luther said it like this. He said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And how can that be? If if Jesus has made us into a new person, if he's changing who we are, then of course there's going to be some type of fruit, some kind of byproduct of that transformation. That's why John says that if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie. Or James later says, faith by itself is dead. And you cannot get deader than dead. Now, don't take it too far. Some of us here teaching like this and we think to ourselves, well, I messed up last week, therefore I must not be a true Christian. Are we going to be 100% sinless when we trust Jesus as our Savior? No. Will there be disappointments? Yes. Maybe seasons of falling away from Him? Perhaps. Falterings and bumblings? Yes. A long way from where we need to be? Certainly. But a long way from what we were? Absolutely. You see, that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's not talking about individual instances of sin. He's talking about a way of life where I say one thing and I look totally different in the overall character and quality of my life. So how do we distinguish here? How do we distinguish between the imperfect disciple and the person that Jesus is warning in this passage? Well, let's look at a parable, that last parable that Jesus shares. That's verses 47 through 49. Jesus says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on the rock. 
And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of the house was great. If you've ever engaged in a massive project, you know the temptation to cut corners. I get those, those packages where you're supposed to build a piece of furniture or an exercise equipment or anything like that, and there's always seven bolts left over at the end. The temptation is to say to yourself, eh, it'll be fine. Everything will be all right. No, just imagine the scale of building a house. I have a neighbor down the road who recently remodeled a little teeny house to a massive house. It was huge. And he did this over the course of a year, year and a half. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the world do you keep all of that together? You have different contractors coming in and out of the house. So many different hands touching pieces of the house. Well, it turns out to keep all of that together, you call the Barnstable Building Department. And they come along each step of the way. Sometimes you're pulling your hair out to get them there to check whether or not the job has been done according to what? Code. If everything's built according to code, then the house will stand firm. But here's the thing. Ancient Palestine didn't have the Barnstable Building Department. (laughs) When building a home, there was this serious temptation to take a shortcut. You would build the home in the summertime. That's when you had to build a home. The problem when you would dig down for the foundation is that the soil was primarily made out of clay. And Leviticus 26 says that that clay was like bronze. So as you're coming to build this house, your thought might be, you know what, this clay, this, this clay is super firm, it is rock solid. In fact, I don't think I can find stones as hard as this clay is. I don't need to dig down to the solid rock. What difference does it make? So instead of fighting the earth in bronze, you put up the walls, you construct that one or two bedroom house on the hardened clay because the rock's down there somewhere. (laughs) It'll work out. And like those Tennessee builders, the dream home is up and the work is significantly reduced. Boom. Bottom line, you got the project done earlier and for cheaper. But, 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 everything has not been taken into consideration. Winter changes the scenario altogether. The rains pick up. Small streams begin to form and they start approaching that house. The water turns the baked clay into the consistency of chocolate pudding. The clay under the stone walls of the dream home begins to move, the walls buckle, stones begin to pop out of the walls, a serious bulge develops in the wall until finally the entire structure is compromised and boom, 
it all comes crashing down. Friends, the storms represent major life events. We'll all go through them. It could be something like the loss of a job in 2008 when that occurred, right? Many of us felt that pressure. Or a medical diagnosis. Or a marriage that's fallen apart. Or some unforeseen event that has occurred in my life. And the foundation represents what your faith is resting upon. Do you know what? causes most people to walk away from Jesus? Here you have the imperfect disciple and and you have this person who's really never placed their faith in Jesus. And when someone approaches these two people during the summer when the clay is firm and says, how is this Jesus thing going for you? Both people say, this is great. My kids are doing well. My job's going great. My health is good. I enjoy the church environment because people are smiley there and they're not always smiley in other places. But that's just summer. Life has winters too. Jesus did not come and, and die on the cross so that we could start a company with a slogan, life is good. At least, not that definition of good. Because I do tell you this, Jesus will bring about more joy and happiness in your life than you've ever experienced. That definition of the good life is just the wrong definition. So is your faith strong enough to stand when the waters crash against the foundation? Why, why do the storms come, we might ask ourselves. You know, we, we could probably reduce it down to just the simple phrase, well, life happens, life occurs. But John Stott sees a more spiritual reason for all of this. He says, only the storm will reveal the truth. Sometimes a a storm of crisis or calamity betrays what manner of person we are. John Calvin, true religion is not fully distinguished from its counterfeit until it comes to trial. You see, some people enjoy the glow of Jesus. But they are not in it to win it. They listen, they listen to Jesus' teachings and they filter out the aspects of Jesus' teachings that they really don't care to follow. It's tough to dig down deep in this faith. Loving my enemy? Are you kidding me, Jesus? I just went up to that person and I, I turned the other cheek and they smacked me again. I don't want to do that again. Or forgiving? You say forgiven an indeterminate amount of times? You know how many times that person has hurt me? Or giving? Or, or any of those things? I don't, I don't want to radically change my values, Jesus. I don't want to be the poor. But I can't follow Jesus while I'm also taking the lead. Because leaders must lead. And followers must follow. And it all feels like digging through clay. But to follow Jesus, you have to dig down deep because a superficial acceptance of Jesus is not going to hold you up when the going gets tough. 
The superficial faith says, well, I believe in Jesus as long as my life gets better. My kids are doing well. There's no storms to pound against my wall. And that's the exact type of faith that fails. It isn't resting on anything. It's like chocolate pudding when life gets hard. Well, how do you dig down deep? He gives us the answer, doesn't he? He says, everyone who comes to me hears my words and does them. That's the bottom line, hearing and doing. John Stott speaks with crystal clarity here. He says, the question is not whether we hear his words, listening, studying, pondering, memorizing, until our minds are stuffed with his teaching, but whether we do what we know. In other words, whether the lordship of Jesus, which we profess, is one of our life's major realities, or we could just say it like James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only. But here's the thing, church. When you dig down deep and reach the rock, you come to find out that resting yourself, your very self on Christ, is what you've always wanted and needed. You just haven't done the work to get there yet. But when you did do the work and you do get there, do you want to experience everything that we're talking about in church every week? Do you want to experience the depths and have your faith come alive and experience Jesus in the fullest sense of experience? experiencing Jesus, then here's the answer. You have to stake all of your life on him. You, you can't dig down deep and say, I'm only going to put 50% of my house on this Jesus thing. You have to dig down much deeper than that. You have to say, I'm going for broke. When Jesus says, give, I'm going to give. When Jesus says, forgive, even when I know I don't have the power within myself to forgive another person, I'm going to trust him to take that first step. I'm going for broke in all of this. Again, here's the bottom line. If you are not staking your life entirely on Jesus, you are staking it on something other than Jesus. So what are you staking your life on? Your eternity on? Maybe as you listen to this sermon, you realize something, that there has been a disconnect in your faith between hearing and doing, between superficial acceptance and resting everything on Jesus. And that can happen so easily to be around the glow of Jesus, but then to never make it personal. I want to tell you a story about an artist, Stenberg, that may relate to you. One spring day, Stenberg came across a gypsy girl. He was struck by her beauty, and so he invited her up to his studio so that he might paint her. Over time, they had formed a friendship, and she would regularly come up to his studio and watch as he painted. Uh, one painting in particular, a masterpiece as he was working on it, was Christ on the Cross. 
And she would look at that painting day after day and, and just marvel at the scene of it all. When she became enthralled with the work, she locked eyes upon the painting and then she asked Stenberg, why did they crucify Him? He must have been very bad to be nailed to a cross like that. Noah Stenberg corrected her quickly. He was actually a very good man. He was the best man who ever lived. He died for others. Well, the girl was struck. And she looked him in the eye and she said, Did he die for you? You see, the artist could not answer that question because the artist had never gone there before in his heart. And the words pierced him like an arrow, struck to the core. He thought to himself, I don't know the one I am painting. One day, Stenberg, searching, finds his way in a little gospel church. And the message was just so simple. Jesus died to save you from your sins. Believe upon Him and you will be saved. And that's when it clicked. Stenberg placed his faith in Christ. We can all be like Stenberg. We can all be caught up in the glow of Jesus but never personalize it. Some of us might be there right now. You've been around the glow. You've been coming to church. You've felt warmed by the songs. You've even said to yourself, you know, I'm pretty okay with most of what the Bible has to say. But have you ever really dug down deep and said, did he do this for me? Have you ever thought to yourself that Jesus was bloodied and beaten and crucified for you? Do you want to stake your life on something that will last? Trust Christ. Nothing else will hold you like Christ can. And don't just trust Him 50%. Go for broke. Believing in the promises of God. Building your foundation on Him. And never being disappointed by the Savior who holds the universe within the palm of His hand. Can I ask you to do something? Would you bow your heads with me this morning? It's important that we make space in our life to consider because the difference between hearing and doing is consecration. Consecration is the act of dedicating a decision to God we're all bombarded by thousands of messages. I don't know about you, but I could just about turn my cell phone off and never turn it on again. And those messages as they come at us, some of those messages we just start swiping and deleting and, and getting them off of our mind. But this is that type of message that you do not want to forget. You want to make a decision. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. 
This morning, Lord, we look to you, we pray that we would go for broke, entrusting in our entire selves to you, believing in Jesus, that he has the right, the authority to change what I value, to change how I love, and to even change who I am. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.